All right. Well, this morning, we are having just one verse uh, of text to, to read right now, and then we'll come back to it a little later on. But we're starting a new series for the month of September. And so the text for the series is Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. You'll recognize it as a part of the Beatitudes. Blessed or blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. I want to introduce you today to our new sermon series on gospel-oriented conflict resolution. We will be spending this next month looking specifically on how to rightly navigate conflict in our relationships. Now, I know that this has nothing to do with any relationship you have, right? No. We all deal with conflict, don't we? We all deal with with difficult situations in our relationships. But I'm convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that this understanding and the skills associated are critical to our walk with Jesus, if, if we can learn how to navigate those waters, and even as a church, if we can learn to navigate those waters between one another, then we will be a great testimony to what we truly believe about Jesus Christ and the gospel. I dare say few things are more important than knowing how to love one another through thick and thin especially when we don't agree. So for the month of September, we're going to focus on how to be peacemakers, how to pursue a God-honoring relationship with someone that you may not agree with. This relationship thing is hard. Can we just be open and honest enough to say, this relationship thing is messy. And sometimes... These relationships are, well, frankly, painful. People's feelings get hurt. My feelings get hurt. Can we just be honest? Honest enough to say that we struggle. Sometimes we hurt one another by what we do or what we don't do. We say things that are not really helpful. It just sort of comes out. And the closer the relationship, the greater the expectation of love and acceptance, the more it hurts when it doesn't go well. Yet we need one another. The greatest joy in life comes in relationships. I'm reminded of the old folk tale about two porcupines in northern Canada, and it was freezing cold outside, and they were shivering. And they knew that they needed to come together, and so they got together uh, for warmth, but they pricked one another. Their quills pricked one another, and so they, they went away because it was hurtful. And then they started shivering again, and they got together again, and they pricked one another again. They needed one another, but they just kept needling one another. And that kind of describes close relationships. We so need one another, but we kind of needle one another too. We need to accept 
that conflict in relationship is just a part of life. It's not evil. It's not sinful. It's not bad even. Now think about that. Because we tend to think about conflict as being something bad. Yeah, you don't want bad. You don't want conflict. But may I tell you and suggest to you that conflict is not evil and it's not bad or necessarily sinful. It just is. Because we're never going to think all alike. It's just not going to happen. And we don't really want it to be. Because we could be really skewed in our thinking if we were. We just need to learn how to deal with conflict in a way that honors Christ's and preserves friendships. Peacemaking and resolving conflicts is so important. Every single epistle in the New Testament repeatedly says, be at peace with one another. Every single one of them. And so I want to, over this month of September, give you the tools to live as a peacemaker. My desire is to give you very practical means and methods to go along with a rich theology in knowing how to be a peacemaker. This is so important to our life together and our life together going forward that we are going to integrate uh, this month of September what's being said on Sunday mornings with your ethos groups. You know, this week we start ethos groups. And so during this month, uh, your group leaders will have some, some suggested questions that they'll throw out to the group and let us interact together about, okay, well, when he said this, what did he really mean? Or, or what do you think about this? Or man, that's something I hadn't thought of before. If you miss on Sunday morning, we'll know that at ethostulsa.org, all the sermon audio is there. Charlie works really hard. You ought to thank him sometime. He works really hard at getting up, up there quickly. And we're going to start, at least for this series, to put full transcripts with that. We want to do everything we know how to do to get information and knowledge and, and understanding out there for you so that you can interact with this subject and and being able to discuss it with friends will be so helpful, I think. We are called to be a peacemaking church. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Isn't it interesting that Jesus said, It's the peacemakers who would be called the sons of God. He didn't say those with impeccable integrity will be called sons of God. He didn't say the moral will be called the sons of God. He didn't say um, those who do X will be called the sons of God. But he said the peacemakers are the ones who will be recognized as sons 
of God. So in the days ahead, we're going to look at a lot of different uh, passages relating to conflict and relationships. There's no end to material because like I said, every epistle deals with it. But today I wanted to stand back a little bit and take a little bit of a higher view, a 30,000 level view, introducing our subject by looking at two grand themes of Scripture and then suggest some implications in regard to conflict. And then we'll circle around again and end with Matthew 5. So, the two themes from Scripture that I'd like to suggest have great implications for conflict resolution is the theme of sovereignty and the theme of reconciliation or redemption. The theme of sovereignty, the theme of reconciliation or redemption. The theme of God's sovereignty, I want to start our discussion by looking at God's sovereignty in his world and in our relationships. Now, together, we affirm that God is sovereign over his universe. Amen? Right? He is sovereign. He is king. He does what he wishes. His rule over his universe is exclusive to him. He does not share the throne with anyone. Everything in the universe is under God's control. Isaiah 14 verse 24 says, The Lord of hosts has sworn, saying, Surely as I have intended, so it has happened. And just as I have planned, so it will stand. God designs what will occur. He's sovereign over every detail of life. The path of every leaf that will fall here in in the next month, the path of that leaf is foreordained and predestined until it lands at exactly the right spot as he is determined. We find in Job that every single lightning strike will follow its path and strike its mark. Job 36, 32. And he covers his hands with the lightning and commands it to strike the mark. That's pretty amazing. Every single lightning strike from the beginning of creation until now has never missed the mark. That is the God we serve. He is sovereign. He is king. His plan includes every event in the world and may I suggest every event in your life. Every situation, every circumstance, large or small, every detail of your life is woven together in intricate detail. And that includes every relationship. Everyone you have falls within the jurisdiction of our king. So, what are implications that I can draw about conflict and relationships in light of God's sovereignty? Let me suggest three. First of all, because God is sovereign, I'm not. Because God is sovereign, I'm not. If he is in control, I can't be. There's only one king. 
If he is on his throne, I'm not on the throne. A lot of my struggles, frankly, come from me wanting to be king. For me wanting to sit on the throne, I want control over everything in my world. I want to establish myself as the supreme potentate, establishing my jurisdiction over everyone in my life. May I say, I want my will to be done. Many of our relationship struggles come from the fact that I want to be in control. And what happens that is in the midst of my presiding over my domain, then you dare to step into my jurisdiction and violate my sovereignty and hold a different opinion or behave in a way that you shouldn't have that was not approved, pre-approved by my administration? How dare you? You have violated my sovereignty. You've become a threat instead of a companion. Now we're going to have problems. But you see, in the midst of this conflict, I'm reminded God is my king and he is my sovereign. Secondly, because God is sovereign, he rules over every detail of my life. God's rule is not just out there in the orbits and the planets and the stars and the nations, but personally in every detail of my life, including every person in my life. If he is not sovereign over every relationship, my friends, he's not sovereign at all and we're meeting for no reason. But because he is sovereign... He is intimately involved in each of my relationships, every single one. See, the kicker is that he has placed that difficult person in my life on purpose. When I am struggling in a relationship, when I have a conflict with someone, I just want them to change. It seems really easy to me. Why don't you adopt my position? Then all will be well. I just want them to change. I want them to admit that they are wrong. Heaven forbid, I can't be wrong. That'd just be stupid, wouldn't it? Oh, we got kids. That'd just be silly, wouldn't it? We call it the S word. We didn't use the S word in my, when my kids were little. Wouldn't that just be silly to hold an errant position? Why would I do that? And we don't understand why they would hold that errant position. You see, I just want them to change. They frustrate me. Why can't they see what's so clear to me? I have to remind myself that God has personally placed this person in my life. It's not an accident, and it's not by chance, and it's not by mistake. Guys, the implications of this are mammoth. Did you know that you are married to exactly the right person? Did you know that your children are tailor-made just for you? Did you know that you have parents precisely designed by God that God knows that they would be just right for you. 
Now you say, whoa, whoa, Steve, wait, wait. Don't you understand that you know, my parents weren't all that good? They weren't nice. They weren't great people. And those kids, they drive me up the wall. Say nothing about my spouse, right? Understand, right now, I am not saying anything about the character of the man in your life or the woman in your life. I'm not saying anything about the character or anything about them at all. I'm just saying that God put them there. And he put them there for a reason, and that's the third implication. Because he is sovereign, he has a purpose for me in that relationship. He has you in every relationship that you have for a reason. Even the ones when we experience conflict and pain. He is active every moment in every circumstance, even in the hard ones, especially in the hard ones. It's no accident. He may have a thousand reasons why he brought that person into your life, but I know of at least one. God has brought this person into your life to make you more like Jesus. God has put that person, that difficult person, that one that you're having conflict with in your life for a reason. And I believe, you see, relationships are the primary means that God uses to produce transformation in our life. We've used this a lot this summer because of our faith series, but Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for the good. Do you believe that? Is it true? For those who are called according to his purpose, for believers, sons of God, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined what? To be conformed to the image of his son. That's why that difficult person is in your life God is somehow using that person to make you more like Jesus. See, that brings purpose and meaning into life. It's a hard reality. It's hard. But it's one that's filled with hope. I've got to be honest here that is right about here in this sermon that I struggled some. Because, you know, I've got those memories too. My mind goes back to a couple guys that just irritated me over the years. They were part of my congregation, and I loved them, and they loved me, but, man, they pestered me. But as I reflected back, I came to see that God was using them making me more like Jesus because of them. Now, I'm not saying it was pleasant. but saying it's effective. But it gets even harder because there are a couple of people that really hurt my children. Um, I mean, really harmed them, brought them pain. And I would not wish that experience on them ever, ever, ever. And I would do everything in my power to keep them from that. But you know, I have to come down. What is true is 
is that God is sovereign and he's really sovereign and he has purpose in those really painful relationships as well. They were placed in my kid's life to make my kids more like Jesus. Now, through the tears, I can say, it is well with my soul. It doesn't make the other person any less guilty. It doesn't make, say, anything good about them. But there's hope. When I accept that that person was brought into my child's life to make him more like Jesus, sometimes things are really hard. But it's especially during those times that I can hold on to something. I have something firm to grasp. God is sovereign, and he is at work creating me like Jesus. The struggle in that relationship is not meaningless. It's not without purpose. He may be doing a lot of things, but he's doing at least one thing. He's making me more like Jesus. Every conflict, every criticism, every struggle that he has ever brought me, he brought it to me for a reason. God is sovereign. But then we come to the theme of reconciliation or the theme of, of, of redemption. The Bible is a book about reconciliation. An understanding of God's story of reconciliation gives me insight into the problems that infect my relationships and my role in peacemaking. So let's review what we know. Once upon a time, there was a couple who lived in a perfect world. Everything was just right. For a brief time, all was well. Adam and Eve had a perfect relationship. They took care of this perfect garden together that never had any weeds. They were really good at their job. They got a sense of satisfaction and wholeness about their work. And in their relationship, ah, it was sweet. No unhealthy competition. There were no power struggles, no vengeance, no hard words, no fear, no guilt, no shame, no rebellion, no anxiety, no depression, no wrong motives. There was no sin whatsoever. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? There was nothing but understanding and love. Every physical, every spiritual, every emotional need was met. But unfortunately, it didn't last very long. The most significant disobedience and rebellion in all of history occurred in this perfect environment. Now, let me just say, it's not the sermon, but just, just think for a minute for those who say that all our problems in our behavior, in our kids' behavior, come from their environment, I'm sorry, I don't buy it. Because our parents had a perfect environment, and they still disobey. But this man and woman chose to rebel against God, and in one moment, their world all came crashing down. In a moment, 
fear and shame and guilt and blame shifting and fault finding became standard for human relationships. See, the problem of sin was introduced into the world through their disobedience and life has never been the same since then. Sin altered every element of their life and ours. Every thought, every motive, every action now is under its influence. But then God quickly stepped in into this tragic situation and implemented a plan to reconcile fallen men and women. This plan would bring men and women once again into a sweet fellowship with him. The plan would take thousands of years to implement and would culminate when one day the curse will be lifted. It would harness all the forces of the created world and would include every element of human history. He's weaving together his plan because he... You see, it's all started when he made a promise to Adam and Eve that one day he would reconcile himself to them and all those who looked toward the Messiah to come who would look to Jesus. And at the proper time and the fullness of days, he sent his son into the world to bear the good news that there's still hope, that we can have peace with God. Jesus was slain, rose again to provide the means by which we can have that peace with God. God promised if we only look to Jesus alone for that reconciliation, we would accept it. It's a beautiful story of reconciliation. Now, at this point, I would imagine that some of you are saying, okay, um, Steve, that's all right, but what does that have to do with the difficult person in my life? What has everything to do? For you see, because of the reconciliation you've received, now you are an agent of reconciliation. Because the one has occurred, now the second occurred. God invites us to join with him in the work of reconciliation. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 17. Therefore... If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God is making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now let's walk through this text very quickly. When we enter into this relationship with Jesus, we become new creatures. Our motivations are different. Our hopes are different. Everything changes. At the same time, as recipients of this new life, we are now charged with telling others about that reconciliation that God has provided for us, and he is offering it to them as well. 
How could we not tell others about the reconciliation that is offered to them? Paul writes that God himself is appealing to the world through us, be reconciled with God. Now, the question is, how do we make that appeal? We are ambassadors for Christ. Isn't that what it says? We are ambassadors for Christ. I love this term ambassador for the believer because it's a rich analogy. Think in terms of a political ambassador to a foreign, world, uh, foreign country. So U.S. ambassador goes to a foreign world, <laughs> foreign world, sometimes it is, right? Foreign country to be an ambassador. What's their job? What do they do? What do their conversations look like? Their relationships. Well, let me suggest several things. I've watched Madam Secretary a lot, so I should know these things, right? If you were a foreign diplomat, you would represent the United States on foreign soil. You would be the representative, correct? You would be there to further the U.S. interests in that place. You're not there to further your own self-interest. You are there to further the United States' interests. You speak with the authority given to you by the U.S., but you're only allowed to speak the policy that is given to you from the United States. You're not charged with making up your own policy. That's not your role. Your role is to communicate from your sovereign to the foreign land. You would not be allowed to behave or interact in business in any way that would be detrimental to your position as ambassador or to show the United States in a bad light. You would understand that you represent the United States in a faraway land. Well, I, I think you can see where this is going, right? Translate this concept into your relationship with others. You are Christ's representative, his ambassador to everyone you have a relationship with. You're an ambassador. You are Christ's ambassador to me, and I am Christ's ambassador to you. And we are both Christ's ambassadors to a watching world. When you speak, you speak on his behalf as his representative. You declare what is true about your sovereign, your king, by the way you live and speak in relationship. You exist, my friend, to further his kingdom. In light of these relationships and these, uh, specifically when I experience conflict, you don't have the freedom to act in any way that you want to. 
you must not disparage your sovereign. You can only act in a way that your king would act because you are his ambassador. You see, you're not allowed and I'm not allowed to use anger or tears or guilt or manipulation or yelling or harshness or sarcasm or harsh threats or criticism that destroys in any way. Why? Because it's just not his way. It's not his way. You are his ambassador, and so you must be representative to him or for him in his manner. What are his means? Well, his means are self-sacrifice. His means are forgiveness. His means, dare I say, humility. Those are his tools in his toolbox. That's how he reconciled the world to himself. You see, this theme of reconciliation has so much to say to us. When we have conflict in our relationships, you are ambassador of Christ. Use the tools that he has given you. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. When Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God, he is telling us that a characteristic of the sons of God is that they will be peacemakers. If you're a child of God, you're a peacemaker. Furthermore, peacemakers will be recognized that they are children of God, sons of God. Why? Again, of all the characteristics he could have chosen, he chose peacemakers to be the, to be the, the shining example that would make us like him. Why does it, sons of God, mean that we look like peace, or peacemakers, that we are children of God? It's because we resemble our Father. God is a peacemaker. The whole history of redemption climaxing in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is God's strategy to bring about lasting peace between rebellious man and a sovereign God. As a result of this peace, he has brought peace. Uh, as a result of this, he has brought peace between men and God and therefore peace between men and men. God's children share the character of their father. What he loves, we love. What he pursues, we pursue. And my friend, God loves peace. Therefore, we love peace. You can recognize his children by their longing for peace and their willingness to reconcile. If our father is a peacemaker, then we will be peacemakers as well. There's a haunting text to me. Uh, and so if something is resonating with me, obviously I'm going to share it with you, right? Uh, 
John 13, verse 34 and 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. Now pay attention here. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Do you hear what he's telling us here? You see, Jesus gives the world outsiders, those who are not a part of us, outsiders, those who don't know Jesus, observers. He gives the green light to them to judge the truth of the gospel. How? By how well we get along, how well we love one another. Is that not shocking to you? Is that not a huge, huge thing to you? Our love and unity is the greatest apologetic of our faith that God has given to us. The strongest testimony that we have for the sake of the gospel going forth in this place, for the sake of the reputation of our king, we pursue peace. We reconcile because our Father has sought reconciliation with us. We love each other in spite of our differences because our Father has loved us. Let's pray. Mm. Father in heaven, would you create within us a yearning for peace? an overwhelming love for one another that we might be good ambassadors. Bring to our mind what you have done for us as we seek to reconcile with our brothers and sisters. May Ethos Presbyterian Church be known by outsiders, by those who are watching us for our love for one another. Will you grant that to us? I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, each week we have opportunity to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. We, we celebrate it, the greatest example of reconciliation the world will ever see, the culmination of God's plan to provide a means by which we can have peace with God. All men, because of the fall, are hostile to God. We are God's enemies, but He provided a way whereby we can be reconciled if we look to Jesus alone. And so what we do each week in communion and the Lord's Supper is that we remember that reconciliation that is ours. We celebrate together that God has made and provided a means by which we can be saved.
it is said that the Lord Jesus on, on the night he was betrayed took bread and after he'd blessed it, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples. And he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after the, after the supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. What a great privilege we have to be ambassadors, to join in God's work in this world, to bring men and women and boys and girls to himself. But to also be agents of reconciliation with each other, modeling being a great example of what God has done in our hearts and among us. If you're here this morning and you're visiting with us, welcome. We're glad you're here. If you're a follower of Jesus, we would invite you to participate in the table with us. If you're here this morning and you say, Steve, you know, I'm, I'm not there yet. I'm not sure that I understand. I'm not sure that I believe it. I'm glad you're here too. Welcome. You're always welcome here. But may I ask that you take this time in your seat to just contemplate and ask God to reveal himself to you, reveal the truth of the gospel to you. And we look forward to the day when you can participate with us, having trusted in Jesus.